This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's It's Rog. It's Monday. And we're back to share one more week with you. Let's win this day. Let's win this week. Or at least, in Jurgen Klopp's words, let's fail beautifully. By that I mean my new goal in life, which is to allow myself to do the best I can under the circumstances. For me as a bloke, who plies a trade, lives a life rooted in suboptimality. It's actually an uptick. But for many of you who are perfectionists in life, you know who you are. Count this as a plea to give yourself some slack sometimes. Be a hendo. Stop aspiring to KDB levels until this is over. To actually bite your hands off to be a Fred or a Theo Walcott right now, man. What a week we've got here at Men in Blazers. Bunch of magical interviews coming your way almost non-stop. Davo, tomorrow, our old Chelsea-loving friend, Larry Nance Jr. Yes, the star of ESPN's epic documentary, The Last Nance. Wednesday, that will be. And Wednesday night, oh my lord, 6.30pm Eastern Time. On Instagram Live, at Men in Blazers, is the handle. We're going to raise a bud, or two, or three... With Becky Sauerbrun, yes, the people's captain, old friend of Men in Blazers, coming on Wednesday, 6.30pm. I cannot wait to take your questions, revel in her wonder, email us everything you want Becky to answer, meninblazers at gmail.com right now. Okay, big day, big show, big stings. You're listening to WGFOP The Bald. Your David Silver caliber questions. My John Stones caliber answers. Let's do it. Well, howdy, y'all. You're listening to WGFOP The Bald. Right there, sting of the day from Judd Johnson in Houston, home of the garbage can bangers. Judd says, with the pandemic, this pod has been one of my anchors of sanity. Oh, Judd, Judd Johnson, thanks for your kind words. Oh, but when this pod is the anchor of your identity, let's be honest, it's a bit like when Mustafi is your centre-back. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Call in your questions to us, 646-450-9472. Let's do this. Hey, Raj. This is Ian. I'm a high school teacher in San Diego. I'm an Arsenal fan. I'm a Portland Timbers fan. I'm also a huge Star Wars fan. And as you probably know, Monday is Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. So my question is, among Premier League players, who do you think would be the equivalents of some of the major Star Wars characters? I'll leave it to you to pick which characters, depending on who you think is the best fit. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Courage. Oh, Ian. There's been an awakening. Have you felt it? Happy May the 4th be with you, day two, mate. I'm not much of an expert in Lucasfilms, gonna be honest, but I'll give it a go. After all, what in life can't be compared to Star Wars? I mean, the obvs, obvs off the top. Jose Mourinho is 
of Supreme Chancellor Palpatine or is Supreme Chancellor Palpatine Jose Mourinho? Sometimes it's so hard to know where one begins and the other ends. We all know he's the dark side. We all know Jose has successfully fooled the Galactic Republic of Tottenham into appointing him as their leader. He's carefully grooming his future dark apprentice, Delhi, and is slowly corrupting the innocence of Tottenham all around him. You've got your Jedi Knight, Sonny. You've got your Jedi Master, Harry Kane. They'll either succumb to the darkness or be cast aside. And by cast aside, I mean transferred to Manchester United. Steve Bruce, tell me that man's not Yoda with his life wisdom. Mm, bacon, do you say? Pep Guardiola, C3PO, fluent in over 6 million form of tactics, analysis, language, social skill game. Not so much. Oh, Jurgen Klopp, Chewbacca, who doesn't love the Wookiee? Mo Salah, Luke Skywalker, final seconds of the game, it's tied 2-2. Who else would you count on to hit that thermal exhaust port that's just two metres wide? Case closed. Arsenal's backline, just a wall of stormtroopers, cannon fodder, Christian Pulisic, Anakin Skywalker, the chosen one. He'll bring balance to the force. And who's Han Solo? Tell me it's not Jamie Vardy. Chat shit, shoot first, beers on the coach and the falcon. Who was that? Oh, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Next question. Good afternoon on a Sunday. Um, my name is Brian, and I am a reluctant Spurs fan and a Brentford Bees fan as well. My question is the federal judge ruling against the United States women's team uh, versus the United States Soccer Federation. Judge uh, Klosner ruled completely in a summary judgment in favor of U.S. soccer against the women kind of shocked me. And my question is, how do you think going forward women's soccer is going to be able to handle this issue? Because it is pretty outrageous that they're going to be still underpaid like they are. Thank you so much. Take care. Brian Bidwill, great American name, bit of a gobsmacker over the weekend. It was not just for football fans, not just for the American women players, but for all female athletes for whom the U.S. women's national team are trailblazing pioneers. Yes, the U.S. women appear to have lost their biggest game of all. A team who win everything have been forced to grapple with a devastating L on Friday a U.S. District Court judge rejected the U.S. Women National Team's allegations of gender discrimination, ruling in favour of the U.S. Soccer Federation, who've maintained all along that their women's team has not been underpaid. Judge R. Gary Klausner, please tell me the R doesn't stand for Rog, wrote in his decision, probably does, that at the end of the day, members of the U.S. Women's National Team negotiated and agreed to the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement under which the current pay structure exists, and that they didn't prove wage discrimination under the Equal Pay Act because the women's team played more games and made more money than the men's team. The period they looked at was 2015 to 2019. The women played 111 total games in that period pulling in $24.5 million overall in salaries. The players making an average 221000 per game. During this same period, the men, a.k.a. Jossie plus 10, played 87 games, earned $18.5 million overall in salary. MNT players therefore made, on average, $213,000 per game, or $7,000 less than their female counterparts. Part of the reason the numbers are like this, it should be pointed out, 
is that the women have won non-stop. All that winning are US men. Not so much. You know, if the US men's national team had done their jobs and, you know, qualified for the 2018 World Cup, they would have made cash trucks of money, at least $23 million, which would have undermined that key argument the judge used to rule against the women and in US soccer's favour. So almost the men's failure is what led to US soccer victory. It's an eye-popping decision, shocked everyone who's been following the saga over the last year. The issue was expected to be settled before the court case began. The only details of the team's wide-ranging complaints which will proceed are that they're subject to inferior travel and accommodation compared to the US men. These alone will go to trial in June. Here's what I predict. You know, rumours have an appeal abound. Everyone I speak to believes that is going to be the case. It will drag the whole trial thing out for at least another year, give the US women another chance to reload, to bolster their standing in the court that ultimately I believe will matter for this, the court of public opinion. That's their greatest leverage right now. US soccer cannot make the kind of money they need to from their US women's success unless the players participate willingly, joyously in sponsorship deals with as much passion as they do play on the field. And right now, that is simply not the case. So it's in both sides' interest to negotiate an amicable step forward and to negotiate that together. I expect the Federation will sit down with leading players. I expect the Federation will sit down with leading players and work out a plan, thrash out a plan that everyone can embrace. Oh, Godspeed. Next question. Hi, Raj. Justin from Jersey City, New Jersey here, and I'm a massive supporter of Arsenal and my local club, the New York Red Bulls. Uh, I was lucky enough to not only be a part of your happy hour for teachers, but to have my question answered live by you. I thought your response was so suboptimal that it needs to be shared with the world. So, my question, you have to build a dream teaching staff and faculty from past or present Premier League managers. Who would you choose and what subjects would they teach? Courage. Justin of Jersey City, I remember you, 8th grade history teacher from West Essex Middle School in New Jersey, one of a couple of hundred teachers we had the honour of hosting in last week's Teacher Zoom Happy Hour. We've got to do another one of those because, you know, to you and all teachers in America who are listening, I raise my bud right now. You are all true heroes learning new skills, learning incredible new techniques to keep a nation of students learning. You know, a lot of Premier League managers probably do believe they're great teachers. I imagine Roy Hodgson is that history teacher whose lesson plan is a bit outdated, pockmarked by, let's just call them backwards views on colonial history. Brodge, my lord, definitely, definitely that economics teacher who doubles as a junior varsity soccer coach and was always most concerned with how cool he appeared in the eyes of juniors. But they all really thought it was a bit of a sad tosser who craved their affirmation. And they only played along because, you know, if you can draw a teacher out, get them to tell your life stories, you can just completely throw them off their lesson plan. Eddie Howe is the cool, young English newcomer. Oh, he teaches all the band books, causes controversy in the faculty lounge of his avant-garde new ways, doesn't give a crap about the standardised tests. Big Sam undoubtedly teaches woodshop. But to cut to the quick... The answer to this, the great teacher, which is what you want to know all day, every day, to me, is Arsene Wenger. And not just because he has a master's degree in economics, but because when I interviewed him, 
I asked him what part of the pressure-filled role of Premier League manager, the hysterically pressure-filled role of Premier League manager, where you've got to be a man-manager, a sports scientist, a diplomat, a tactician, a PR specialist, a master communicator, a negotiator, you know, everything. Every, you have to be everything. You can't be everything. I said, what is, Arsene, the most important role you play in your eyes? He didn't have to pause didn't have to think. He just immediately responded. He said, I am first and foremost an educator. You know, I said, what, what do you mean? He said, I try to be faithful to the values that I believe are important in life. And then I just work so hard to pass them on to my players, to my young players. He talked about how those players, you know, the most important thing he had to do was ensure, this was fascinating, that they left the club as better people than when they arrived. Jury's still out with Sesk. But I asked, what value, Arsene, is the most important one that you believe you need to inculcate in your squad? And he said something that I'll never forget and that I honestly try to live my own life by. Wenger said this. Tenacity is the most underrated quality in life. We all speak about talent, intelligence, uh, glamour, but tenacity is the common thing for every successful person in life, you know. Maintain that motivation to go from A to B and to keep your focus on that target without any weakening. That is called tenacity. Uh, stamina in your motivation. Oh, Arsene. Tenacity. Stamina in your motivation. A to B. Oh, but tenacity being the common thing for every successful person in life. Oh, courage. Let's have a sting. WGFOP Oh, the banjo sting from Tim Ostedek. A reminder. Someone needs to practice a little harder, faster, stronger on their own banjo right now. Next question, por favor. Hi, Raj. This is Tim in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, West Ham and Hibs supporter. Uh, during the lockdown, uh, I started buying kits of jerseys and uh, West Ham guys and other international players that I like. I was never a big Jersey guy before. I was just wondering, is it acceptable for a grown man to be buying uh, all these jerseys all of a sudden? And then second question, uh, I know your least favorite kits, the uh, highlighter Man City comes to mind. What are some of your all-time favorite club and national kits? All right, thanks. Courage. Big question. Tim, hello to you and to all Yinzers. Oh, my favorite jersey ever is a tie between Peru's 1978 World Cup shirt, the simple white with the red diagonal sash, which made me fall in love with diagonal sashes forever, and the US jersey 1994 World Cup, yes, the denim stonewash, to watch the US men swagger onto that field of play and just deliver. Such a life-affirming, life-changing moment for me. I just arrived on these shores, and I love that kit. It showed that football belongs here in America, at the highest level. Having said that, oh, they've had such few good shirts since, and that drives me crazy. Other shirts that come to mind off the top of my head, and we did write about this in the Encyclopedia Blazer Tanaka, Arsenal's Bruce Banana kit. Google it, 1990 to 1992. Still mind-blowing. Rave culture meets football in the best of ways. Spurs, Hummel Home kit, 1988. Tasty, tasty, tasty. And just a... Simple rule of thumb, anything Lecoq sportif is just chef's kiss to me in my heart and my mind. 
I, I adore Lecoq Sportif. I don't understand why it's not the biggest sports brand in the world. In terms of your own story, I love it. I love it. I love that lockdown life has sparked this new passion for you, this new odyssey, this new compulsion. Full disclosure, I am an avid collector of crap, so I totally understand the urge, the allure of eBay. I really do. And I say to you, don't fight it. Lean into that urge to collect. It's exactly what we need in lockdown pandemic life. New passions, new joys, new meanings, new hobbies. And I'll even say this. I hope she's not listening. My wife's rule that if you are over 30 years of age, a football shirt adds 40 pounds and 20 years, so you shouldn't wear them. I would say I'm going to speak to Dr. Fauci and get a ruling whether we can suspend that law during lockdown. Because I'll tell you this, my wife's also banned me from wearing t-shirts because, you know, I look a bit like a bit of a sad knob when I wear them. But I have found such incredible solace in my collection of vintage t-shirts over the past seven weeks. I've actually liberated them from storage, from deep storage. Um, I've got one t-shirt that I'm wearing now, right this very second. And it comes from 1989 when I was one of those kind of creepy, weird English students who come over to Maine and become camp counsellors, or I guess creepy camp counsellors. And I got put in charge of a bunk of six-year-olds, amazing kids, whole bunk of them, maybe about 12 of them, loads of wet beds that summer, it was magic. And some of these six-year-olds were so large, so large, oh, America, they actually fitted into their clothes. And I'm wearing one of them at the end of the summer. Gave me this incredibly thin now because I've worn it so much. But they gave me this Hershey's t-shirt for Hershey's kisses. It is the kind of t-shirt that would look amazing on a six-year-old kid from Boston, Mass in 1989. But looking at it right now just allows me to unlock and tap into so many memories. So many incredible feelings. And I hope, Tim from Pittsburgh, you experience the same sense of story and past, and nostalgia, and wonder, as you look down on your vintage West Ham shirts. Oh, glory, glory. Next question. Tap into those memories. Bavakasha. Hi, Raj. This is Sam calling from Alton, Illinois, supporter of Spurs and St. Louis FC. I I was wondering, I'm approaching my 21st birthday in a little over a week. And I was just wondering, what was the first drink you had when you were old enough to drink legally? I'd love to know. Keep on encouraging. Happy birthday, Sam. Oh, we'll get to you in a minute. My first drink ever takes me back. April 1st, 1978. Seven-year-old Rog going to his first ever game of football live. Everton Football Club with his dad, Judge Iver. It is freezing. It is so very cold. Goodison Park, oh, heaved with sound as we arrived around the stadium. The stench of beer, cigarettes and police horse turd hovering everywhere, as it should, at a proper football match. I was seven years old. I dreamt of this game feverishly for weeks, but little had prepared me for the reality. We got to our seats. They were tucked away at the back of the main stand. And there were just rows of full-grown, beer-bellied men between me and the field and I couldn't see a thing I was tiny they were massive darkness but my neighbor complete stranger instantly recognized my plight it was freezing but defying the cold he saw me and he just stripped off this full length sheepskin coat that he had in theatrical fashion folded it neatly dramatically into a square of one hand scooped me up with the other 
dumped the coat on my seat and then flung me on top of it. You know, totally there. Suddenly, my sight line elevated considerably. I could see everything. He looks at me. He goes, problem solved. Oh, he was just clad in a T-shirt now, and he just turned to me. I'll never forget his words. He just goes, we're all one big family here at Goodison. And it was amazing to watch this game. It was so bloody freezing. By halftime, I couldn't feel my extremities, my fingers, my toes, my down belows. They were just all going full on Jack Nicholson at the end of The Shining. My dad, God love him. He just pulled this is parenting. This is parenting. This should be a parenting podcast. He pulls out of his pocket a flask from his coat pocket, takes a slug, and then just goes, drink this, son, which I do. It's my dad giving me it. So I take this flask. I didn't know what it was. I take a massive gulp, massive, of a liquid which just, God, it overwhelmed me with its energy, just the way it instantly warmed my body. It was like being lowered into the greatest, most wonderful warm bath of all time. I was just instantly heated up. And so at age seven, thusly, Rog was introduced by Judge Ivor to the world of Scotch, which has been a lifelong wonder in my life alongside obviously the bud and the jägermeister which i am now 73 percent composed of but at the age of seven scotch baby that became my drink so that is that is my story and that's enough about me because sam from alton illinois 21 today what a day what a day what a life milestone and as you become 21 on this magical date I know there may be some darkness that you cannot just charge out and just have a Diego Costa on the lash style evening. But know this, know this, you are coming of age at a time when meaning is changing, when roles are changing, when life is changing. And I believe you, your friends, your generation are going to find new purpose, new energy, new life. Once we leave this pandemic lockdown, you know, life is going to be lived, I believe, with heads up. Talk to producer J-Dubs about this all the time. Noticing details in the everyday that have always been present, but we've always failed to notice. You'll notice everything. You'll take everything in. And from here on in, you and we will never take anything for granted again. It's going to be just sensory overload, creative wonder. So to you, Sam. From all of us at Men in Blazers, from all of us listening at WGFOP, we wish you health, we wish you happiness, and a lifetime of joy and meaning to come. To you, Sam. Courage. You're tuned in to Suboptimal Radio for Suboptimal Times. WGFOP.